Okay, uh, John chapter 9. This is a big chapter, 41 verses. I'm, I am going to get through all of it, all right? And Jesus is healing a blind man. And he's going to put that in the context of, I'm the light of the world. And then he's going to come to a blind man. And the light of the world is going to meet the man who was born blind. And the man who was born blind is going to be able to see. So that's one of the storylines. The other storyline picks up from last week where Jesus announces, I'm the light of the world, and then the Pharisees blow a gasket about that because in John 8, Jesus makes these claims that, that leave no doubt in anybody's mind that Jesus is claiming himself to be the Son of God, actually the eternal God, and that nobody's saved, nobody is safe unless you come through Jesus. Okay, chapter 8 was that teaching. Chapter 9 is going to be this parable, this picture of everything that Jesus meant in chapter 8. So, he's going to encounter a blind man. Now, there are kind of three issues I'm going to focus on in this passage. There are sort of three um, points of controversy or contention here. The first is what do we do with suffering, okay? And I'm going to hit that right off the bat because it comes up in the passage. The second thing is going to be this whole issue of the Sabbath and how I think Jesus is provoking the Pharisees with the Sabbath. And the third is, what does it mean that Jesus is your Savior? Um, what, what, what puts you in the place to be able to worship Jesus? All right, so with that said, that's a little outline. Here, here we go. Uh, John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, this is Jesus, he saw a, um, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man, uh, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work, uh, the works of God, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay. So before Jesus heals the blind man, he sees the blind man. And this is important. I, think, I mean, so he, he sees him. He is drawn to him. Jesus is going to step right into the middle of his great Need A man who, by everybody else that day, would likely be ignored, would likely just be sort of the backdrop of their day. Jesus sees him, zeroes in on him, and steps right into the middle. It's not the first time Jesus has done this. He does it in John chapter 4 when he meets the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. He does it in John chapter 5 when he sees the guy who's been an invalid or paralyzed um, his whole life. He steps right into the middle of that. Steps into the middle of the woman who was caught in adultery at the beginning of John chapter 8. Jesus sees brokenness, and he's drawn to brokenness, which means this morning, he sees your brokenness. He's drawn to it. You're not hiding it from him. He knows it, and he sees it. Now, there's this question that the disciples will ask. And they'll ask the question, so who sinned? So, so really, they say, well, why is he blind? 
And they're asking this question because the teaching of the day, so the Talmud said, you know, listen, there's no, um, it reads this, there's no death without sin and there's no suffering without iniquity, which means everything has a cause. If the man's blind, he's blind because there's a cause to it. Now, what's interesting is the, the, the Jewish leaders, they knew the book of Job. The book of Job was in their Old Testament already, and yet it is the same mistake that Job's friends will make with Job when Job is going through this suffering. They approach it and say, okay, well, Job, let me tell you how this is. You're suffering because you've done something bad. Everybody knows, Job, it's karma. You know, I mean, God keeps track of your three sins that you did today. That's optimistic. And uh, then he repays you with three zings somehow. Listen, we, we can laugh. We think about it that way. It's our natural man. So that's why they want to know that. So who's, whose fault is it? Now, Mark Kirkendall made this great observation. The guy's blind. He's not deaf, you know? In fact, he probably heard that. So Jesus says, look at what he says. Verse 3, it was not this ma- that this man sinned or his parents, but that or so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, let me say a couple of things, and this is early in a sermon to hit some really heavy things but I, but I want to speak into this because I think this is important. Sometimes we know things theologically that we don't understand very well experientially. And so we have to continue to remind ourselves of what the truth is in the Bible so that we don't, you know, wander off into some kind of despair. Now, the Bible says, listen, in one sense, all suffering comes from sin in general. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, the sin enters the world, the man and the woman become sinful. We find out in Romans 8, it wasn't just the, the man and the woman that are broken now because of sin. The whole world's broken because of sin. Romans chapter 8 says the, the earth, you know, it's, it's creation's groaning and longing for the day that the final redemption comes. Everything's broken. I mean, there's a sense in which all suffering is related to sin in general. Now, the Bible also says, while suffering comes from sin in general, it does not come from sin in particular. There is not a cause and effect for sin. Now, let me make two statements about that. One. There are natural consequences, okay? If you, if you do something dumb, you will certainly suffer the natural consequences of that, all right? But that is how natural things get played out. That is not God's hand of divine punishment on you. There is a difference between natural consequences and divine punishment. Divine punishment is the very real uh, product of sin. But listen to this. God does not disguise 
his wrath against sin. He, he you know, he, he's not you know, orchestrating natural events to somehow veil that he is punishing sin directly. So when you hear the next guy on TV say, well, this earthquake happened in this place because those people are sinful, turn it off. Or, or by the very least, don't send him money. Okay? Because it's wrong. God doesn't disguise his wrath. Man, when God punishes sin, when, when divine judgment is laid down, he's, he's not coming across, as Wendell says it like this, he doesn't, hand out, uh, he doesn't hand down afflictions like a sulking, passive-aggressive adolescent with unlimited power. When he punishes, he takes personal responsibility for it. And we know from the, he has stayed the punishment until the Bible says the end of days when his wrath will be poured out on all sin and wickedness. All right, there's much more to say about all that. There's three great judgments in the world, and they are all owing to God. I've said it before. The first one, worldwide judgment, it's, it's the flood in Noah's account. And God takes full responsibility for that judgment. The last judgment is the one that comes, you know, at the end, at, at, at the end of Revelation, at the end of the days, at the beginning of eternity, and there's the great white throne. There, there is a judgment there, and God is actively involved in it. Do you know what the second judgment is, the one that happens in between those two, where the wrath of God is poured out in divine judgment? It's the cross. The cross is a world wide judgment on sin. And listen, either Jesus paid that penalty. He was the object of God's wrath for you or you will be the object of God's wrath for yourself. Now, let me say one other thing. Jesus is going to turn this around and he's going to say something positive about it. He says, okay, well, then why does suffering come into our life? What, why does it happen? Well, one is the natural consequences. The other, though, Jesus is going to say this. He's going to say, so that or but that the work of God may be displayed so, so that the work of God is, is uh, made visible. So, so here's this view of Jesus, uh, of, this is Jesus' view of suffering here. Suffering is governed by, God has control over suffering, and it's governed by God's will so that All suffering's there to display and to further the redemption of the work of God in our lives. So that. So, so he wasn't, you know, he's born blind, but, it, but it's not because of his sin or his parents' sin. It's not that they weren't sinners, but that there's an intent. Suffering is never for nothing. It's never senseless. You go to Lamentations 3, God hates our affliction. 
He's sad with us. He didn't design the world to be full of pain. Romans 8, 28, all of the things, you know, it's a pat verse, but it, it's true. They work together for those, for the good of those that love them. But Ephesians 1, 10, everything happens according to the counsel of God's will. Pain was not God's design. And yet pain and suffering in your life, they, they're governed by God's will, which means he controls what's there. He keeps check on it. So as a believer, you can say, look, I'm, I'm, if you're suffering today, which I know many of you are, you say, look, I'm suffering, and, and God's mad about suffering. And he's done something in history to deal with suffering, to, to vanquish it forever. Yet I also know his will governs the pain in my life today. And so there's a purpose for it. There's an agenda, a loving agenda from God for it. Go to the end of Genesis. and Joseph says about his brothers, what you did, meaning you did it, God meant it. You meant it for evil. You're responsible. But God, God governed it for good. All right. So, so that's this important that we hear this and we understand it. That's Jesus' view of it. Now, he's going to heal this man. Look in verse 6. And he says, um, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with mud, which means he took the mud and he shoved it into his eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus does several miracles in the Gospels where he heals blind men. And he does it in a variety of different ways. Sometimes he just says it and they're healed. Sometimes like in Mark 8, he'll take the man in Mark 8, 22, and he takes the man and he, and he spits in his eye. And that's a weird one because the guy only then halfway sees and then Jesus does something else and then he sees all the way, but that's a different sermon. But there's this old Scottish preacher and his name was John McNeil. And uh, so he tells this story and he imagines this story about the blind guy from Mark 8 meeting the blind guy from John 9. And that they have this conversation, and the blind guy, you know, one of the blind guys says, hey, so you were blind. And he says, yeah, I was blind. Um, and then the John 9 says, but, you know, my famous line is, yeah, I was blind, but now I see. John 8 goes, Mark 8 goes, yeah, I wish I thought of that. Um, <laughs> and the John 9 guy says, well, hey, so, um, so how was it? I mean, you know, was it weird, you know, when Jesus, he spit on the ground, and he made that mud, and, you know, then, then, he, then he rubbed it onto your eyes, and, and the guy in Mark 8 says, well, I, no, there, there wasn't any mud involved. I, he, just, he just spit straight into my eye. 
And the John guy said, John 9 guy says to Mark 8 guy, he says, well, wait a minute, are you, are you telling me so there was no mud on your, on your eyes and then you didn't go, you didn't go somewhere and wash it off and then you saw Mark 8 guy says, no, I'm telling you. I mean, all he did was spit in my eye and then I, I could see. So the John 9 guy says in this imaginary conversation, well, I don't know that you're healed then. I'm not sure you really can see. And thus began the first um, split of denominations. You had the Muddites <laughs> and the anti-Muddites. That's pretty good for a Scottish guy, I'm going to tell you. We talked about John 8. John 8's this, the, what we call the I Am chapter because of how often I Am shows up. John 9 is the blind chapter. You'll find the blind shows up in John 9 more than any other place. And, and in blind, in the, in the scripture, it has two meanings. There's a physical, real blindness. There's also a, a spiritual blindness. John means both of these. And he's going to weave them together for us. Now, here is, you're going to see. Now, he's healed, and he comes back. He's going to go through a series of five conversations, all right? And the, one of them will end up being about the Sabbath. Listen to how the story goes. Verse 8, now the neighbors and those who saw him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said to him, uh, and some said, it is he. And others said, no, but it is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed and received my sight. And they said, well, where is he? And he said, I, I don't know. And so there's this skepticism. This man, he's been blind. It's, you know, I mean, if you're blind, you're at the bottom of the social rung. I mean, most people didn't even notice him. That's why they're saying, well, I don't know if it's him. He kind of looks like him maybe. And, you know, but and he's like, no, it, it was me. It really was. And then all he knows about Jesus here, he knows his name, and he knows he was a man. So this wasn't some angel, it wasn't an apparition, it, it wasn't, you know, it, it, he didn't dream, I mean, a real physical man encountered him and caused his healing. So what these neighbors are going to do is they're going to now bring him, so his, his, notice the progression of understanding in this man. Uh, of this blind man, how he'll view Jesus. First, he's just a man. So in verse 13, they said, that, well, they brought him to the Pharisees, or they brought the Pharisees uh, uh, to the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day. And when Jesus made the mud, uh, when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, this, now the second time, he'll repeat this often. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, well, this man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how, how can this man who's a sinner do such signs? And then there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, Why, uh, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? This time he says, well, he's a prophet. Now, let me tell you why that's important. So, when you say he's a prophet, in the Old Testament, the prophets, part of their ministry associated with the ministry was healing. So, you had 
prophets in the Old Testament that did healing, all right? So not all the prophets, but many. So Elisha, he heals leprosy, and he raises a son from the dead, and heals the king of Syria, and Isaiah heals Hezekiah, which is an unknown prophet in Judah in 1 Kings, and he heals King Jeroboam's hand, and Elijah, Elijah raises a widow, and so you see these healings that prophets do. But blindness is never healed in the Old Testament, in fact, in Psalm 146, verse 8, says that that is something only God can do. And in Isaiah, you'll find a few times, as Isaiah is looking forward to this messianic age, this time when the Messiah comes, he says about that time, he'll, he'll bring sight to the blind. And so Jesus is very self-aware that when he heals a blind man, he is fulfilling what the Old Testament said about who the Messiah would be. In fact, you could go to Luke 7, and Luke 7 is this place where John the Baptist is in prison. He's about to be beheaded, and you know, I'm sure he's like, this is not how I thought things were going to go. So he sends his disciples to go find Jesus miles away in Galilee. And he says to he says, ask Jesus, are you the one? Or is there another that we should be waiting for? See, it does, I'm in jail, and it doesn't feel, if you're the one, it doesn't feel like it. So you know what Jesus does in, John, in Luke 7? The disciples come and they say, John wants to know. And it says that for the next hour, he healed couple of things, but it makes point. He healed the blind for an hour. And then he says to the disciples, go back and tell John what you have seen. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 47. Well, so he does this on the Sabbath, which, so you can just make a note. Jesus' favorite day to heal people was the Sabbath. And he did it because I think he's poking the Pharisees right in the eye. And you say, oh, Jesus wouldn't do that. Oh, yeah, he would. And he is. And here's the reason. So the Pharisees, they said, well, the Sabbath. And you know, God said in the Old Testament, well, keep, keep the Sabbath holy and, and, and you rest on the Sabbath. And, and so the Sabbath was for you. Was this gift for you? Well, the, the, the religious leaders, over time, they'd said, well, well, that's pretty good, um, but we want it to be better. So then they began to add all these rules about the Sabbath. What's work and what's not work, and could you tie your shoes or tie your apron? I mean, it was exhaustive. Way beyond anything God said and what God had meant for them, they had hijacked it. And they'd made this religious scorecard out of it. And Jesus was guilty of three scorecard infractions. One of them was, you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath, heal anybody. <laughs> you know, like that happened all the time anyway. But you're not supposed to heal anybody on the Sabbath unless their life's in danger. 
Well, he failed that one. The second one, you can't need anything. So you can't need bread. Well, Jesus was kneading the mud, and, then, and, and so he failed on that one too. And then the third one was you can't anoint on the Sabbath. And the man specifically said, he anointed my eyes with the mud. And so he said, well, he's a sinner. He's broken God's law. To which Jesus will often say to them, I didn't break God's law. What you say is not God's law. Your religious scorecard, that's not God's law. And the question I have for you this morning, real quickly, is what is your religious scorecard? You know? The things you keep track of that, you know, how well you're doing spiritually. Now listen, we all have them either consciously or subconsciously. What is your scorecard? How do you know when you're like doing good and, and, and firing on all spiritual cylinders or, you know, you're not doing so good and, you, you know, what's your scorecard? Now, here's what I would say. Jesus doesn't care about your religious scorecard at all. And more than that, he's against it. He calls the Pharisees blind throughout the Gospels. In fact, they're worse than blind. They're blind guides. They're people, they're the blind that lead the blind. Now, make a couple of connections here. We, as believers, if you're a believer this morning, the New Testament makes clear that you you should be growing out of spiritual blindness into spiritual insight. You, you should be growing in that. It's a progression this man makes. So l listen to how this works. So, so it, it's not measured with a scorecard of religious do's and religious don'ts. That's not how you grow. How you grow is measured by something vastly different. And Peter tells us, it's one of the places we're told, and Peter does it in 2 Peter. Listen to this. For this reason, 2 Peter chapter 1, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue or moral excellence. So, okay, well, Peter seems to be saying something different than you're saying. Well, hang on a second. Your faith with virtue, and then your virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly love. So, well, that sounds like a checklist. Then he says, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. And this is how it's described. Having forgotten that he or she was cleansed from their former sin. Here's what he's saying. Morality is important. We should be increasingly good people and godly people. That's a good thing. But what culminates from that is brotherly or sisterly affection with love. And here's the difference. 
Most people use their spiritual scorecards, their religious lists, to justify themselves and condemn others. If your moral pursuit does anything to increase your own self-worth and your own comfort about how good you are, that's spiritual blindness. If you look and go, you know what? Hmm. I'm doing pretty good. I'm not really that bad. That's blindness. Having forgot about your sins being cleansed. See, really, it's morality that leads to a humility that leads to an unexplainable love for those around you. I'll give you a quick example from church history. The um, early Christians, you know, right after the first century, and maybe even earlier, were, they were maligned and abused and, 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 and mistreated and, and, and endured suffering by the Romans and the, and the people around them. And one of the things that was um, accused, one of the charges brought against the Christians had to do with how they loved each other. And it had to do specifically with them calling each other brother and sister. And they would say things like, see, they're a bunch of, you know, abominable, incestual beings. Because brothers and sisters marry each other and they knew it wasn't right, you know, but, but Tertullian, he's this guy, second century, early Christian. His dad was a Roman centurion. He is attracted to Christianity. He, he comes to Christ because of Christianity. He cannot figure out why these people would endure such suffering and yet remain so joyful. And so he investigates, and in that investigation, he meets Christ. And so he writes... To the, to the Romans, to the pagans, to the people that are accusing this. And he says, we love one another to your regret with mutual love because we do not know how to hate. And all you do is hate. Thus we call one another to your envy, brother and sister, as those men and women born of one God and parent and companions in the faith and fellow heirs in hope. So we who are united in mind and soul have no hesitation in our love for each other and the sharing of all we have. All is common among us except our wives, he adds. It's a, it's a growth, it's a, it's a looking like Christ that produces this humility and love for those around us. But see, that's not what the Pharisees are doing. They're expending tremendous amounts of energy in the name of God to convert people to morality, to their religion, and it was all based on what was superficial. You, you know, what your race is, what your, who your parents are, what your profession is. If you're broken... No. If, if you're blind, nope. If you're lame, no. If you're divorced, no. If you have a need, no. If you're poor, 
No. See, Jesus comes into the world. He says, that's darkness. And I'm the light of the world. And now it's no longer about who you are and what you're making of yourself, good or bad. It's about who Jesus is and what he is making of you. In fact, that's the way Isaiah says it. The Lord comes. Isaiah 42 says, he's going to be the light of the nations. He's going to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And then you know what he goes on to say? He says, and and he'll declare new things and we will sing a new song and he'll lead the blind and he'll turn the darkness into light and you're precious in his eyes. And he loves you and he'll be with you and never leave you. And you can never be taken away from him. And on and on and on. That's why the man says in verse, listen, 16, 17, if God listens to Jesus, how can, he, how can he be a sinner? This man will progressively understand more and more about who Jesus is, culminating in his confession and worship. Now, listen to the next bit. So the Jews did not believe. This is their response. Oh, yeah? Well, he wasn't ever blind to begin with. So they didn't believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received the sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Verse 22 tells us his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. The Jews were already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he was going to be put out of the synagogue, which was terrible. You would be ostracized. You probably couldn't even work. There they are. The son had been born blind, and they can't even celebrate what's miraculous about this. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind, and he said, and they said to him, all right, here's what you need to do. Give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner. That's what they want him to say. To the glory of God, tell us this man's a sinner. And he answered, Whether he's a sinner um, or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, he said, I've already told you. And you would not listen. Do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? The guy's awesome, right? I mean, think about this. He's been the lowest rung of the ladder. He's had these people kick dirt in his face and ignore him and, and, and allow him as they walked by for him to go hungry that day because they believed about him. Something's wrong with you and you should have gotten your life together. And here he is standing before them. The only sane 
person in the whole crowd. I don't know if he's a sinner. Here's what I do know. I was blind. And he transformed me. Notice how they respond to him. Verse 28, and they reviled him. They reviled him. Say, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. (laughs) And the man, I love this guy. Well, that's an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. You're supposed to know everything. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God will listen to him. Never since the beginning of the world has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The logic is sound. It's truth. So you know what you do with truth? You were born in utter sin, and you'd teach us, and they cast him out. You know what they're doing? La, 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 la. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He heard, cast him out, and he goes, and he finds him. Take heart. In this world, you will have trouble, but I've overcome the world. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Which is the way of saying the Son who has come from God in the form of man who is God. All that John's been saying. And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him, which means he fell face down on the ground and worshipped He hadn't seen him before. He was made to see by him, but he goes and he washes and begins to see, and Jesus isn't standing there, so he knows his name, and he knows who transformed him. But here he's standing face to face. The man born blind is moving progressively upward, and the Pharisees, if it was possible, are progressing even further downward. Now notice this last bit. It says in verse 39, for Jesus said, or Jesus said, for judgment I've come into the world that those who do not see may, who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees heard him say these things, and they said to him, are are we also blind? 
And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now you say, we see your guilt remains. There are two sides of the judgment here in this story. The man is judged, he's found worthy. The Pharisees are judged, they're found wanting. Now, Jesus' purpose, you find out through John, wasn't to come. His judgment is not one to condemn or divide. He came to save, not to condemn. But the very fact of Jesus' presence and the very grace that he bestows and the very uh, belief and the salvation that comes from that belief necessitates or brings with it a judgment also. In order to bring grace, that grace also brings an offense. For grace to uncover sin, it must confront sin. And if you bind yourself to your sin and your pride, then you will find yourself judged. And so in verse 40, Pharisees want to know if they're blind also. It's interesting. The man wants to know how to believe. The Pharisees are wanting to know if they're blind. Maybe they're wanting to know, how can I become blind? Oh, yeah, well, how do I get blind? And here's the point. You are blind. You cannot unblind yourself. Not with the law. Not with morality or goodness or synagogue attendance, or the clothes you wear, or the language you use or don't use. You cannot unblind yourself. You're blind. You can't make yourself unblind. Only Jesus can give sight to the blind. And so the Pharisees, here's what they've got to do. They have to renounce any sight that they think they've achieved. And they have to confess blindness. Only then. Can they receive sight? Only then can they be healed by Jesus. Only then can they truly see the light of the world. Here's what's so interesting to me, and I'll close around with this, but John keeps saying, the light came into the world, but the world loved the darkness. I think... Okay, loving the darkness. When I hear that, what comes to my mind are people that do like really bad stuff, you know, naughty stuff. That they're lovers of darkness. That's not the case with the Pharisees. You know what the Pharisees wanted to do? They wanted to do good stuff. Morally speaking, they'd give every single one of you here a run for their, your money. And yet it says about them that they loved the darkness. And loving the darkness for them is related to or amounts to the belief that they are not that bad and that they are getting better all the time. It's a belief that they are sufficient to solve their deepest problems and heal their deepest hurts. Their belief is that life, spiritual life, is measured from a scorecard, a spiritual scantron, and that they're passing. I mean, listen, they would concede, look, there's sin. Sin really is a big problem. But belief that results 
to them pointing to that sin in other people and other places. Listen, a lover of darkness points to sin in others and judges them as failures for not being able to pull themselves together or get their act together or just, you know, just do the right thing. It's not that hard. This, uh, listen, this is totally convicting for us. No, let me say it. This is totally convicting for me. When, see, when you do that, what you believe is that at the deepest level, sin's a personal problem, and you should be able to manage it. You should be able to get a handle on it. And the problem is, is that you don't go deep enough. Sin is universal. It's, you're born with it. It's congenital. It's incurable. And, and you're infected with it. Here's what's worse. You don't even know it. You're sick and you don't know it. You're as sick as and guilty as to the same degree and the same severity as the worst wretch that you can imagine. And it is in seeing, believing, and confessing your desperate need. It's pointing the finger at yourself and saying, you know what? I don't know that guy's story. All I can see is the outside. But I know about that guy's outside, that's what's inside here. And pointing the finger at yourself and going, hopeless sinner. And then, then you're blind enough to now be able to see the light of the world. Jesus didn't come into the world. And there were sinners aware of their need and eager to get rid of their sin. He had to come as the light. And it is those who out of desperation say, I'm blind. I cannot unblind myself. I give you two examples in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, if you take it chronologically, he's been preaching for five chapters. Some really good stuff. But in chapter 6, in the year King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the throne, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And below there were the seraphim, and he describes these magnificent angelic creatures, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations began to shake, and the house is filled with smoke, and you know what Isaiah does? He says, oh, ho. That's the Lord. Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of unclean lips. My eyes now have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the story, that scene ends with, your guilt's taken away, your sin is atoned for. Oh, I, I see now how blind and helpless I really am. That's what happens. Happens with Peter. 
several times, but one in particular, Luke chapter 5, he's fishing. You know, Peter's a fisherman. He knows how this goes. He fishes all night. He doesn't catch anything. Comes near the shore. Jesus says, hey, did you catch anything? He's like, no. So we'll throw your net over to the other side. And, and he, for some reason, he does it. And then the net fills with fish, and then the boat fills with fish. And it's in that moment he catches a glimpse of who Jesus really is. You know what he does? He says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. I'm sinful. It is in the light of your presence that I realize how sinful and blind and helpless I am. Where are you this morning? You still checking off your spiritual scorecard? Religious scorecard? Jesus doesn't care about that. It's coming and saying, only you. And what you've done and what you're doing in me. And that brings a humility in us that causes an unexplainable love for one another. That's how you know. God sent his son to save you because there's nothing that you could do for yourself. Praise the Lord. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, this is your word. This is the story, the account.